So we turn to the Word of God now. Um, The title for the sermon this evening is The Transforming Power of the Holy Spirit. The Transforming Power of the Holy Spirit. And the big idea is that Christians need the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to function as effective believers. So we need the power of the Holy Spirit to function as effective believers. Well, I think evangelical churches in the Western world are often struggling with low attendances and having a minimal impact on the communities around them. And they often um, provide for the needs of those within them very well. But if we're being honest, the church often seems to be irrelevant to those in, the, in much of the country, in much of the, the world. And people don't really think about coming to church, even as they used to do, say, 20 years ago. However... We live in this society now that's it's fragmented, it's individualistic, and it's characterised by loneliness and individualism and every man for himself. Um, you see that in America <clears throat> on the television where people just seem to do what's right in their own eyes even more than over here. And so people are on their own sometimes lonely, individualistic, and there's a huge opportunity for the church to fill those needs. There's a real need for friendship in the world. And it's an opportunity for us to reach people with a genuine Christ-centered love uh, that extends to others. Um, As quite a few of you know, I worked in New Wortley, um, working in the community, in the church there in Leeds, inner city Leeds, And what brought people in was genuine friendships. And I was blessed because I had time to do that. But people came in when you made friends with them. And and they stayed as well when you continued to look out for them. So people need to see this loving contact and interest, genuine interest in them. It's not always easy. Um, I I live on a road where... um, I see very little of my neighbours. We all live on a main road. The traffic is busy and there's high hedges. And people don't really come out of the um, houses to talk. And in fact, I get the most contact with my neighbours when I start a bonfire during the day. And my next door but one neighbour comes rushing around to tell me off. Um, But I like to think that I've responded very kindly to her. And the last time she came round, she actually... Rather than shouting at me, she was quite pleasant. We just pointed out that I should be burning things after dusk and not in the middle of the day when her washing was out. So I acknowledge, that's just an aside, but I acknowledge that it's the difficulty in meeting people in this society. But we are commanded to do this. We also live in a world of the breakdown of respect for authority in a large majority of the population. And when you... <clears throat> I don't know if, you prob- if you've ever been on YouTube, you can see videos of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests and other protests and so on. And what strikes you is, that, is how little respect people have for law and order and how even when people are pulled over by the police in their cars, they protest and try to quote various laws 
to get out of even showing the officer their ID. Uh, things that I would think most of us wouldn't dream of not doing and would probably be as polite as possible. Um, particularly older ones amongst us who are more used to um, respect and certainly respect for the elders and those in authority. But generally, you know, mo- not most, but a lot of people have very little respect for law and order. And I think when you reject the authority of God, then the rejection of any form of authority follows. And everyone does what is right in their own eyes. You know, no one tells me what to do. And the church needs to be strikingly different to the world around. So not only in being loving and friendly and Christ-centered witnesses to others, but also in those who are willing to submit to authorities, particularly in this time, whether you agree with it or not. The only way we can do this is by being spirit-filled, loving people, not only as individuals, but as a church, because, you know, we're we're part of God's church. We're part of, um, you know, the one church. Um, my, My first point, therefore, is when the Spirit is poured out, Christ truly returns. When the Spirit is poured out, Christ truly returns. Well, the Old Testament Israelites had a unique privilege among the nations at that time. And they were distinguished by the fact that God was with them. And back in the book of Exodus, God came down into Moses' life and revealed himself in the burning bush in Exodus 3. And this was a continuation of his promise that God intends to dwell with his people. God would be among them. And the bush indicates him being a consuming fire. God would be among them without burning them up. But this is God's intention in salvation. It's to gather for himself a people of God and to dwell with people. Now Moses was a reluctant leader, but God gave him assurances that he wouldn't be on his own because he says, but I will be with you. And so desperate was Moses for God to remain with the Israelites after they'd backslidden that he said in Exodus 33, because the Israelites had sinned with the golden calf, and he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So the people of Israel were distinct by the fact that God dwelt with them. They had the presence of God with them. And later, when they built the tabernacle in Exodus 40, the presence or the glory of God descended on the tabernacle. And the people had the presence of God dwelling in their camp. And when the camp packed up and relocated, the glory of the Lord left the tabernacle and then descended on the tabernacle again. So the people had the presence of God with them. And uh, later, when Joshua succeeded Moses... And he was about to lead Israel into Canaan. He's encouraged by the fact that God says, The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God's presence was a distinguishing feature of God's people. And a great encouragement too. The presence of God returns in the New Testament era with the person of Christ. He is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or literally he tabernacled among us, pitched his tent with us, John 1 verse 14. 
And Matthew 1 says that a child will be born named Emmanuel, God with us. So now the presence of God is not a burning fire or a cloud, but a man, God in the flesh. Jesus made him known. The commentator says that Jesus came to give us the exegesis of the Father. He made him known. If you want to know what the Father's like, then we look to Jesus, because he made him known. In these last days, Hebrews says, God has spoken to us by his Son, who is the radiance of the Father's glory. He makes him known. The disciples lived with Jesus daily, and they watched him do... um, Miracles of healing, and they watched him do amazing things like control nature itself by calming the storm. And they even witnessed him raise the dead. They listened to him teaching, and they were instructed by him, and sometimes rebuked by him for their lack of faith. But they were, they were never the same again when Jesus was with them. The presence of God was now in a man become flesh. God and man in the person Jesus. But Jesus was not going to be with them forever. In his third year of ministry, in John 7, he begins to prepare the disciples for the fact that he's not going to be with them forever. He's going to be leaving them soon. And he says to them in John 7, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. However, as worrying as this would be, Jesus gives them hope and comfort in John 14 saying, I will not leave you as orphans. I will give you another helper to be with you forever. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. That Jesus is promising the Spirit that as as Jesus is going away, another is coming so that God's people wouldn't be orphans, so that they wouldn't be left on their own. The commentator says, in this Jesus, as Jesus would say, in the Spirit, I am coming back to you. When the Spirit is poured out, Christ truly returns. I love that statement. When the Holy Spirit comes into us, Christ truly returns. And other passages in the Bible talk of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of his Son. That's Galatians 4. Or the Spirit of Christ, Philippians 1. So the Holy Spirit, in a very real way, is is the Spirit of Christ. Is Christ returning. You could say that the coming of the Holy Spirit would be like having Jesus with, with them. And their experience would be better than before. The disciples had an intimacy with Jesus, brief though it was, it was only three and a half years of his ministry. But now they would have a new intimacy. And the one who had been teaching and preaching and been alongside them, um, Emmanuel, God with us, was going to be dwelling inside them. John 14 says that the spirit of truth dwells with you and will be in you. And Luke 24 says they will be clothed with power on high. So then, because they're not going to be on their own, they're going to have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And which is a good job because they are then going to be commanded to go out and do amazing things to witness to Christ to the ends of the earth. Matthew 28 in the Great Commission says, Behold, I am with you always 
to the end of the age, I will be with you. He has just said, he's just commanded them to be his disciples and go out to the ends of the earth. But his comfort and his encouragement is that they weren't going to lose the presence of Christ. He was going to be with them always. To the end of the age, I will be with you. But when the Holy Spirit is poured out, Christ truly returns. The second point is being empowered for ministry. Empowered for ministry. You know, people can do amazing things for God, but only when filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. We've read the text in Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. So Jesus, just before his ascension, promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples. The Holy Spirit, um, fully God, a member of the Trinity, a person of the Trinity, to be a source of power for them, to testify to Jesus as Saviour, to the whole world. And not only is the coming and empowering of the Holy Spirit a promise, it's also a command. We're commanded in the Bible to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, the Bible doesn't say, you know, if you feel like it, perhaps you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but be filled. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be filled with the Spirit. And the context is perhaps more than drunkenness, but referring to a pagan form of worship where their pagan god Dionysus was worshipped in drunken states along with frenzied dancing and prophecy and music. And when in this drunken state, the god was thought, their god with a little g, was thought to enter the worshipper. But it was a state of where the you know, they were to be, in their drunkenness, united with their, their God. But instead, we're not to be like that. We're to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and given over to God. Yet, in a way, it's a good example, their drunken state. It's a good example of being given over to something. It's a wrong thing to be given over to, but in the fact of their um, devotion to it and it's all encompassing giving themselves over to it so we are to be given over to the Holy Spirit to, to ask for him to fill us and to ask for him to control our lives our lives are not our own they don't belong to us we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we belong to him our lives are not ours to do what we wish they're his so it's not a bad analogy, really, for the Christian life. Walking in the Spirit every day means to live each day, seeking to be filled by the Spirit. To remember to be filled by the Spirit and to ask God. And therefore, for God to be the dominant influence on our life. Not the flesh or the world or its secular philosophies and ideologies. These things are too strong for us to resist without the power of the Holy Spirit we can't be godly Christians without the Holy Spirit. 
infilling us and dwelling within us because it's the spirit of Christ. Uh, when the spirit is poured out, Christ truly returns. In Romans 8 tells us that if we're controlled by the desires of the flesh, then God is not in us. But if we're controlled by the spirit, then we have life in our bodies. If your life is entirely given over to materialism and you know, the world and the flesh, then you don't belong to God. And you might think you're a Christian, but you're not. Because Romans 8 tells us that we're dead if that's our case. But if we're controlled by the Spirit, then we have life. It's a real, com- uh, a real, um, you know, a real command for us, <clears throat> real prom- more than a prompting, but a command for us to live for him and be filled with him, to live wholeheartedly for God. Being filled with the Spirit is a necessary prerequisite for service to God. I love the story of Gideon in Judges. Like Moses, he was a reluctant servant. Um, The angel of the Lord is a likely theophany of the Lord Jesus Christ. Greets him by saying, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valour. And you can almost hear Gideon thinking, Mighty man of valour? Because that's what Gideon was like. Very reluctant. The Lord commanded him to go in, this might, in his might, God's might, and save Israel. Or even his own might, in fact. But Gideon protests, saying, I'm not up to the job. My clan is the weakest of, of the tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. But the Lord says to him in verse 16 of um, Judges 6, but I will be with you. Gideon then receives a number of confirmations, like the angel burning up his offering with fire. Gideon then realizes the angel of, he is the angel of the Lord. And he says that he has seen the Lord face to face. So he understands it's the Lord. He understands it's a pre-incarnate Christ. And God also graciously confirms his requests for proof that God's going to help him. Because he asks, you know, he lays out the fleece and asks God to make it covered in dew and then covered in dry on two separate, dry on two separate occasions. And he asks for confirmation and, and God graciously gives this. In the middle of all this seeking affirmation and confidence, there's a lovely verse, verse 34, that says, The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Some versions say, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with himself. It's a great verse. The Holy Spirit clothed Gideon with himself. What a comfort. And I think that, quite rightly, we can say that with his encounter with God and being clothed with the Spirit, he had the power to go and do what he needed to do, to go into battle and defeat the Midianites. And when you read the account of the battles in the following chapters, there's no hesitation with Gideon. No doubt. He goes straight in, takes, whittles his men down to 300 and defeats the, Gideon, uh, the Midianites. Of course, it's God who does the battle and defeats them and throws them into confusion. Um, but Gideon's very decisive. He has complete trust and assurance following that encounter with God and the clothing of the Holy Spirit. And another thing that I really love about his account is that he's given 
when he's given a dream by God to confirm his future success, Gideon responds by immediately worshipping God. Similar to the verse we read from Ephesians 3, following Be Filled with the Spirit, where people worship and sing spiritual songs and hymns and so on. When we are genuinely clothed in the Holy Spirit, our response is worship, to praise God. Because whatever we do well is not in our strength, it's in his strength. God chooses the weakest people. Uh, look around, you know, there's no Samsons in here. I'm certainly not one and, you know, none, none of us are. No, no one's a great hero, I don't think. But in Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we are. We can do amazing things as Gideon. Surprisingly, Jesus needed to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Just before the start of his ministry, Luke chapter 3, Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended on him. And before his temptation in Luke 4, Jesus is led, this is Luke 4, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And afterwards, Luke 4 verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. And following this filling with the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus casting out demons with a word. We see him healing everyone who's brought to him and him teaching with an authority that people had simply not heard before. Well, the disciples, however, didn't receive this type of empowering. They didn't have this new covenant filling of the Holy Spirit until the day of Pentecost. This is the empowering that Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem until they receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They had the Old Testament measure of the Holy Spirit in the way that John's disciples had, in the way that had led them to Christ. But John's baptism was different. He baptized by water, but Jesus baptized in the Spirit. And that was an unusual period, that period of time in early Acts as there was a crossover of the Old and New Covenants. But once Pentecost came, the disciples were filled with the you know, New Covenant fullness of the Holy Spirit. And they were filled to such an extent that they did mighty things afterwards. The promise of Joel of New Covenant fullness of the Holy Spirit was fulfilled. Um, at Pentecost, God says from Joel, In the last days it will be as God declares that I shall pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men dream dreams and I will show wonders from heaven and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. At Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit had a dramatic effect on the disciples and on the early church. Jesus said, even, that they would do far greater things than him. He says in John 14, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And church history shows us that they did do greater things. They didn't do greater miracles than Christ, but they reached more people than Jesus did 
and certainly a greater extent geographically, the gospel went out to the whole world as, as he commanded them and us. The gospel is going out to the ends of the earth and in that we will do greater things than him in the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples were completely transformed by the Holy Spirit after Pentecost. Peter had denied Christ before the crucifixion. But afterwards, he is a remarkably different person. He's a changed man following Pentecost. In Acts 2, he gives this great sermon on um, explaining how the Old Testament prophecy from Joel was fulfilled by the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the death and resurrection of Christ is a fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies. This is an untrained man, um, a fisherman, that gives this great, confident, bold, um, theological sermon full of the Holy Spirit. And thousands responded. They were cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And 3,000 were added to the church. Peter is a transformed man by the advent of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit. And then just a little later, he addresses another crowd, Acts 13, verse 13, and says, God glorified Jesus, but you, you crucified him. He didn't hold back. He wasn't the denying Peter, the afraid Peter of a little servant girl. He says, you killed him. You killed the author of life. Now repent and turn again that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And Acts 4, he, he he's arrested and he stands before the priests, the Sadducees. These are the elite rulers of the, uh, of the day to answer questions about what by what power he healed the beggar that he had just healed and again you know with filled with the spirit he spoke to them and says it's by the name of jesus whom you crucified he doesn't hold back he's bold and filled with power and confidence peter who was afraid of a little serving girl has become like a roaring lion and the apostle paul again called people out in Thessalonians 1 verse 9 and they were people who were steeped in pagan rituals and culture he turned them from idols to serve the living and true God he was able to do this because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction when God gets hold of people and puts his Holy Spirit into them then they're empowered to do amazing things, bold things. And these are ordinary men and ordinary women that God takes and uses. But we must be filled by the Holy Spirit. God empowers us for ministry. We can do amazing things and be like lions, but only when filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, a personal empowerment of the Holy Spirit. A personal empowerment of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit enables us to experience God. And one of the issues in evangelicalism and 
versus Pentecostalism, if you would like, is this whole idea of baptism of the Spirit. And you know, it's the idea that um, some people believe that there's a separate, once you're converted, there's an additional baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, and the, those that have had this additional baptism of the Holy Spirit are somehow better Christians than those that haven't had it. And you get like a two-tier Christianity separating those who've had it and those who haven't. And the effect of that is that some people who haven't had that, so they think, may feel like second-class Christians. So should we seek this baptism? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, makes it clear that when we become Christians, we all receive a filling of the Holy Spirit. We're all baptised by one Spirit into one church. For by one Spirit we are all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All were made to drink of one Spirit. So I don't think there is a two-tier Christianity between those who've had a second blessing and those who haven't. Um, all believers have had the Holy Spirit at conversion. Before, and before conversion, they were led to him because no one can come to the Father unless you know, the, the Son gives them and they're drawn to him by the Holy Spirit in John 6. But the context is that um, all believers are baptised into one spirit. Everyone's received the Holy Spirit at conversion. But this answer to Pentecostals gives insight into how we should live. Because the question is asked then, what is this experience that um, Pentecostals and Charismatics have had? You know, I've read about, yeah, I've been to meetings, as many, you know, some of you may have, where hands are laid on people. And they receive the Holy Spirit. And they're never the same again. So what is that experience then? And how does that affect us as believers? Given that all believers have received the Holy Spirit at conversion. And why does it matter? Well, it could be in the way that the preparation that people who um, go to these meetings are asked to do before hands are laid on them. Often people are taught to confess all known sin. They're to repent of any remaining sin in their lives. They're to trust Christ to forgive these sins. And they're to commit every area of their life to God's service. They're to yield themselves fully to him. And then believe that Christ is going to empower them in a new way and equip them with gifts for ministry. I think these are really good things to do. All believers should do this. But as one commentator says, perhaps it's that some of these people who, who have their hands laid on them and have an infilling of the Holy Spirit and a powerful experience. Well, perhaps, he says, that there may be not, some of them may be not Christians in the first place. And, that, and they're overwhelmed with the closeness to God and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that sense of love and forgiveness and joy. Because they've never experienced that before. Because they've never been Christians but that's something that if, you know, if you're not a Christian, then that's something that you need to do to experience the Holy Spirit personally, to be empowered. Confess all known sins. Repent of any remaining sins. Trust Christ through his death and resurrection to forgive you. Then commit every area of your life to God. 
and yield yourself to him. Will you say, you know, not my will, but yours, Lord. Whatever you want from me, then I will do. And then the Holy Spirit will come in as you're converted. Some people do this, you know, in, in an instant, in a, very quickly. Some people have an experience of the Holy Spirit in a powerful way and some don't. But they're filled with the Holy Spirit at conversion. And maybe some people who do this are backslidden and they have been cold towards God and um, they've been, you know, materialistic and not close to him. But that's, that's also not right. And then because they've repented and they've committed themselves again to God and asked the Holy Spirit to fill them, then they experience the Holy Spirit again. Because we are commanded, be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with him daily. You know, the church needs to be different to the world around us. And we can't be different and holy and happy you know, Yorkshire people are supposed to be dour. Um, and quite a lot of Yorkshire people are. But Yorkshire Christians don't need to be dour. Yorkshire Christians can be as happy as a lark. In Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, underconfident, shy people can be bold, as the disciples were when they went out and preached. We're not all asked to preach to multitudes of crowds, but we are asked to be witnesses to our faith and to stand up for ourselves at work when, you know, Christianity comes off or is being slated, uh, comes about in a conversation or is being slated, we are asked to testify to be him and be good witnesses. And we can only do this when we're filled daily with the Holy Spirit. And then we'll be filled with joy. We're to keep short accounts with God, to confess all known sin, and to yield ourselves, submit ourselves. It's such an otherworldly thing. No one in the in society or in humanism or secularism, has this sense anymore of submission and yielding. But as Christians, we yield ourselves gladly to God and to his will. And then the Holy Spirit will come into us and fill us and empower us for ministry, whether just being a, a godly person with your family or being a minister in the traditional sense. The only way to be effective signpost to God is to be a spirit-filled, loving, and outward-looking person and a spirit-filled, loving, outward-looking congregation, corporately. So in conclusion, when the Holy Spirit's poured out, Christ truly returns. And people can do amazing things for God, to be like lions, but only when filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are to be filled daily. And to have this personal empowerment for our own witness and ministry through confessing our sin and yielding ourselves to God and asking him to fill us daily. And then we will have the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to function as effective believers. Amen.